you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Did you know that less than one half of 1% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are LGBT? It may not come as much of a surprise to you, but did you know that there's an organization dedicated to changing that? One that is dedicated to lifting up LGBT business women and men so that we can become leaders? Today on Queer Money, we host Todd Sears, the brainchild of Out on the Street and now Out Leadership, the leading organization that is helping the top 65 companies in the world advocate for strong LGBT business leaders. How did he get in front of these companies? What impact is it having on you and me? These are just some of the questions we answer this week on Queer Money. Before we jump into the show, do us a solid and share the Queer Money podcast with your friends. Let's build a financially strong queer community together. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Well, welcome to Queer Money, Todd Sears. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Absolutely. Would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what your background is, please? Sure. I, uh, I like to call myself a recovering banker turned LGBT equality entrepreneur. Uh, so I was a, an investment banker, a private banker, uh, diversity leader, and then started out leadership eight years ago. Gotcha. And like I said, before we started recording, David and I are excited to have you on today because we've talked a lot about on this podcast and in um, the different places where we write that we're making a lot of advancements in LGBT equality. And a lot of that has come from the political sphere. But we believe that we can make much greater and more uh, drastic and efficient advancements in private business. So we're, tr- we're trying to get more LGBT people into um, C and E suites to sort of lead the discussion of what diversity and inclusion looks like, and not sort of just be behind the scenes. And so it sounds like that's that's what your message is. Is that right? It is. And I would actually probably add to your point about the political progress uh, being made from the politics side. I would argue that a lot of the progress we've seen in the last eight years has actually been because of the business community. And if you look at where businesses have stepped up, not just in the U.S., but globally, and leveraging their economic power to push for equality, that's where we've actually made the most progress, whether marriage equality or non-discrimination. And that's actually our driving principle for our leadership. Um, I actually call it return on equality. It's a different ROE. Gotcha. Nice. And what is that? Could you elaborate on that return on equality? Well, when I started out leadership, there was actually, number one, CEOs were not in this conversation. Uh, Businesses were really not at a global level and definitely not at a major U.S. level a part of this conversation. And so I really wanted to bring business leaders together. I looked at, at Davos and the World Economic Forum, and I thought, could I create that level of C-suite business leader conversation for the LGBT community? And so that was the original model. And the framework and the pillars were and still are business, talent, and equality, but in that order. So I wanted businesses and CEOs to come to the table because they understood that equality and non-discrimination was a core business value and that it actually mattered to their bottom line. And then to capitalize on that, they actually had to have LGBT talent and equality was the output, right? So that you actually got these companies to engage on a sustainable basis because they understood the bottom line impact. And from then, you know, when I started, there'd never been more than one CEO in the same place at the same time, almost nine years ago, talking about our issues. And now globally, we've engaged over 360 CEOs, gotten LGBT on the main stage at Davos, are on five continents. We're actually the first global LGBT business organization with 70 multinationals that support us. 
And that framework is, is really sort of summed up by return on equality. So I, I think that there is and should be an actual business return for equality and the businesses should seek it. You know, Todd, I, I guess I kind of have to ask, do you see that actually happening? Are we starting to see, I think that traditionally we've noticed that most of the time the dollars that are spent, the pink dollars that are spent, are spent on things that we usually see in advertising. So we see our, our money being spent on travel. We see our money being spent on on uh, food and alcohol and things that are typically kind of the discretionary things in life. But if we see lots, uh, a lot more companies opening up to this idea of return on equality, are they actually seeing that return now? I think absolutely. I think if you're only looking at the discretionary spend, I think you're probably looking at it from a too narrow of a lens, potentially. Mm -hmm. Because I think the pink dollar is much bigger than just what we spend on travel. And we do spend a lot on travel. Um, But it's much more about how we're engaging in products and services that are much beyond that. So from an investment banking perspective, from a private banking perspective, from a consumer products perspective broadly. So I can give you a great example. HSBC in Hong Kong just launched a week and a half ago a brand new insurance product because believe it or not, up until now, and it still is a major legal challenge, it's actually illegal to have a domestic partner or gay couple as a, a same-sex beneficiary of its life insurance policy in Hong Kong. Wow. The laws are like 150, 175 years old. Well, HSBC said, well, first of all, that's crazy and we should fix it. And by the way, they've been a huge global supporter of equality throughout leadership. Their CEOs have hosted our summits globally for a number of years. And so they're very well versed with what the issues are and the opportunity is. And so from a market perspective, they said huge pent up market because gay couples have not been able to insure each other in Hong Kong. Two, major discrimination exists. And three, we're the big player in Hong Kong. So why don't we fix it? So they did. They created an entirely new insurance property or, or project that they launched a week and a half ago that not only, by the way, lets gay couples insure each other, but it broadens the definition of insurable interest to include uh, uh, unmarried spouses, your grandmother, your, you know, just, you know, really thinking about the broadest definition of family. And I think what's really cool about that is while the driver may have been LGBT, doing that change helped the entire community, right? So that it was a much bigger impact than just the LGBT community in Hong Kong. That's what I mean about that sort of it's, you know, I think discretionary income and where we spend in those sort of smaller pieces, I, I think is, is one piece, but I think it's not the, the whole. Right. I agree. And and we are excited to see more of that. There has been such hesitancy for companies to, uh, as John and I like to say, you have to see it to be it. And we are so often lacking or more often not that we say that we're um, severely underrepresented when it comes to general advertising. And so if companies are starting to see that return, then we might see ourselves and be ourselves a little bit more when it comes to kind of what we especially are looking at is the financial products, the financial services, the ones that can actually help our dreams come true. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the visible role models that exist in the community are, are only increasing. And I think that's a really good thing. I think sometimes it's a matter of time. I often get asked why there aren't out gay CEOs at the same levels that we'd like to see. And I think there are lots of structural factors that are at play. Uh, you can't just you know, snap a finger and have out gay CEOs at the Fortune 500 level. You know, if you look at the average tenure and age of CEOs in the Fortune 500, it's in the mid to late 50s and their tenure is significant and the turnover is less than 2%. So if you're looking at where the LGBT people are, there actually are significant LGBT leaders one level below. 
And so I think to your point about role models, and if you can be it, you have to see it to be it. I think if you look at that one level below, including regional CEOs, by the way, so Antonio Samoas is the openly gay regional CEO of HSBC for all of Europe. Louis Vega is the new CEO for Australia for Dow Chemical. Jim Fitterling, the new global CEO of Dow Chemical. Obviously, Tim Cook. Um, Beth Brooke, the vice chair of EY globally, one level down from the CEO. Sally Sussman at Pfizer. There are a significant number of super senior leaders at that one level below the Fortune 500. And then the mid-cap companies, there are significant numbers of more and more out CEOs. And I guess the final piece on that that I, I think is important to always note is when you think about the average age and when these people were coming up in the business world, right? If you started in your business in the business community in the 70s or early 80s, keep in mind that the American Psychiatric Association still considered being gay a disorder until 1978. Right. And you were able to be fired in all 50 states for being gay, which of course now we can still only be fired in 28 states. So <laughs> maybe that's progress. <laughs> so the world that they came up in was not a world that was accepting. It would be career ending to be out. So there was this navigation of being in the closet. And at what point in your career do you risk coming out or is it too unsafe at various points? Right. So I think we're seeing lots of progress on that. And that actually is one of the things that I'm excited that we're helping with. Yeah. And it's great that we have those role models, those individuals. Love the fact that you as an organization are trying to make not only our community, but the business community and in general more aware of those kinds of leaders, because as they see those leaders, then they recognize them for their strengths in business rather than the fact that they are um, of a different sexual orientation or gender identity than what business world has typically been comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I actually, you know, when I talk about out leaders, one of the things that we've built is a, the first global next generation talent program uh, called out next. And so we have young LGBT leaders um, in the U S and Europe and Asia and Australia. We have a global summit in New York and then half day salons in the other regions. And one of the key pieces that we really focus on in those, you know, the U.S. summit's three days. The idea is, one, I want these young leaders to get best-in-class leadership development. But most importantly, I want them to understand their what I call gay vantage, right? Fifteen years ago, you would not see being gay as a business advantage. And even five years ago, we had research that showed that only 11% of women thought being gay was an advantage in their career and 17% of men. In this Outnext cohort, we just published a piece of research a week and a half ago called Out to Succeed. And in this young LGBT cohort, 70% of these young leaders think being gay in their career is a positive career attribute, wow, which I think is huge, right. really exciting. And when you kind of dig into it, there are two key things that came out. One, and this is anecdotally proven as well as research, LGBT folks have a level of empathy that's greater than most other populations. And empathetic leaders tend to be some of the most successful and sought after leadership characteristics in the business world. Right. So LGBT people, because of discrimination, of course, and most minorities actually have higher levels of empathy, but the act of coming out and the challenges and the knowing ourselves that comes from coming out create a level of empathy that is a massive career attribute. And so what I'm hopeful we'll see is even more companies realizing that and focusing on this highly engaged and empathetic cohort for their talent pool. Dave and I often talk about how we see things in like sort of a barbell perspective. It seems to be that there are those of us in our community who are striving for those uh, more senior level positions, um, those of us who are saving and investing aggressively and taking care of our, our financial security. Um, and that seems to be one part of our population. But then there's another part of our population who doesn't seem 
as positive. They seem to be somewhat, um, they're suffering from more limiting beliefs, not necessarily sure that they can achieve those C and E suite level positions. Um, do you see that those two groups coming together? or And if not, is there a way that we can help everybody sort of maintain equilibrium? Well, I, I would say a couple of things. I think one, I don't think our community is any different than the broad human population in that in any group, you call it you know, New York City, you're going to have people who are driven to succeed and have confidence and who have access. And then you will have people who have any number of reasons to be down on themselves or feel like they're down on themselves or, or can't sort of you know, get there. Uh, so I don't think we're unique in that. I do think that there are certain aspects of coming out and discrimination and navigating the intrinsic and the structural homophobia and the gender norms and the pieces that exist in our community and not just ours, maybe the U.S., but the global community that people either can internalize or get over. Um, and so I think there is definitely internalized homophobia that still exists in our community. And it comes out in research around, you know, the perceptions that gay men have of themselves the perceptions that gay men have of lesbians and vice versa, the perceptions that gay and lesbian people have of bi people, trans. I mean, you, you can slice and dice and create a, an intersectionality conversation on any of these pieces. But I do think that there are specific challenges that gay people in particular do have. The, the book, The Velvet Rage, I think is a, is a great sort of diagnostic of that, which is, you know, as a gay man, for example, and that's the only experience I could speak to authentically, uh, as a gay man, you're told that, you know, don't be a sissy and all the things that are sort of the parent tapes that you have growing up, right? But you know that you're different. And then you have, you know, what the Andy Tobias, you know, the, the best little boy in the world book. Mm -hmm. So you overachieve at various points in your career or in your life growing up in school, you overachieve so that people, you know, when they find out you're gay, they'll be okay with it because you're such a good student or you're such a great athlete or you overachieve on all the other things. So one, you couldn't possibly be gay, or if you are gay, being an overachiever will make up for it. Um, and so, you know, that plays out all the way through careers. And you see that as an archetype of one type of gay men in particular. Um, and so, you know, I think there are lots of challenges that people have around their identity, squaring their identity with the expectations of society. And there are always going to be people who are able to overcome those. And there are always going to be people that are not able to overcome those. Uh, and I think that's where the role modeling conversation really has to be something to focus on. And having those who are able to overcome those really be visible and share their stories and talk about how they did or what they still struggle with, right? The perception that everybody's, you know, if you're successful that you fixed it all, you figured it all out is, of course, not true, right? right. Everybody, everybody has their stuff. Um, and so I think being honest about that and sharing the fact that no one's perfect, I think can be helpful for those who are still struggling. Right. Yeah, there's a was a recent study conducted out of the University of Surrey in the UK that talked about the the differences when hiring managers or recruiters are recruiting or, or interviewing individuals that may be perceived as LGBT. And what we found surprising about this is that that the study basically did not identify these individuals and the hiring manager or the recruiters uh, were then later on asked, do you think this individual might have been? And that was after they identified whether or not they would hire this individual, what pay level they thought they should come in on, in at, do they think that they're a, a person worthy of hiring? And unfortunately, 
there was a correlation between individuals who they identified as LGBT not being the ones that the, these individuals wanted to hire. So I, I, I like the fact that you talked about there still are some societal norms or discrimination out there. But the thing I love that you said is it is very basic. We have to just get over it. Uh, and it kind of speaks to uh, conversations that we had with uh, Jay Allen, who was an EVP at Charles Schwab. Um, he basically said at one point, he said to himself, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to stay and work for an employer or at a place that doesn't respect me as a human being. And we interviewed uh, Tim Gill uh, of the Gill Foundation who started mm -hmm. Quark. And he basically said the same thing. At some point, I needed. I said to myself, I, it's not about being gay. It's about being a business person. And yep. which I think is for individuals who have some level of confidence, that's a little bit easier. But you also mentioned this idea of providing the role models, providing the mentorship. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how OutLeadership does presents that kind of information or those opportunities? Sure. And and if you don't mind, I want to comment on the, the Surrey study as well, because I think it, it ties into several sort of thematics that I'd like to focus on. Um, and, and it's true not just in Surrey, but uh, Andres Kilchik here in the U.S. from Harvard actually did a study on resumes. Uh, and if you were openly LGBT on your resume, he sent resumes, he sent two identical resumes to the Fortune 100, all of whom have non-discrimination policies, all of whom say that LGBT people should be welcome, all of whom have gay ERGs, et cetera. And on one resume, he had the candidate say that they're president of the Gay Student Alliance. And on the exact opposite, I mean, on the exact copy of that resume, he made the, the other half of the resume say that the student was president of some sort of social club that had nothing to do with gay. And for the gay resume, the, uh, the responses were 40% less likely to get an interview if they were openly gay on the blind resume, right? And that was wow. in the U.S. And so, you know, to your point, that absolutely still exists. And I would come back to the point that Tim, who's been a, an old friend of mine as well, makes, which is you can't be a victim. You have to own your stuff. You have to get over it or you, or you drown in it, right? And I think that's absolutely the case uh, with, with what we're talking about. Um, as it relates to our leadership, I, I think there are lots of things that, that we do that sort of tie into that. Uh, we have eight initiatives that we've built globally. When I first started, I called it Out on the Street, um, given my, my background. Um, and you know, just for, for reference, when I was at a, a private banker at Merrill uh, in 2001, I started what became the first team on Wall Street to focus on LGBT financial planning. Uh, and we brought in almost $2 billion from the LGBT market. Half of what we brought in was gay couple financial planning. And then half was nonprofit. So I managed, or my team managed the endowments of HRC, Lambda. We had 31 LGBT nonprofits. And what that allowed me to do at a Merrill level was to get a firm that was old school, command, control, Irish Catholic, had never sponsored a gay organization in its 91 years, which, by the way, none of the Wall Street firms really had at that point. I got that firm because I proved there was ROI for investing in what I was doing to not only change their policies, but to spend millions of dollars on the market because I was able to tie what we were doing directly to the bottom line. And so that's how I framed everything that we do with our leadership. I want companies, as I said in the very beginning, to come to this conversation because it does tie to the bottom line in some way. And by the way, there are about 15 to 20 different ROI points, everything from brand through to recruiting, through to employee engagement, through to culture. And, you know, the, the bottom line sort of sales piece of it is just one. And so when we built out leadership, as I mentioned, I started calling it out on the street because that was my background. 
And then I launched Out in Law, which, as you may imagine, I'm super creative with my nomenclature. Um, <laughs> Out in Law was focused on the legal community. And so I had two sort of uh, sort of side-by-side summits, and all of our summits are hosted by CEOs, and the attendance is only sort of managing director level or higher. So I really wanted that sort of key senior business community, both LGBT and ally, to come together to talk about these issues. Uh, and so if you start with that piece of it, by getting those senior business leaders to engage and take CEOs, so Lloyd Blankfein, the chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, was my first board member. He hosted our summit six years ago. Um, and when you have someone like Lloyd, who basically puts his imprimatur on what you're doing, and then you have the chairman of Bloomberg, or you have the global CEO of HSBC, or you know, you name Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, all these CEOs have hosted our summits and spoken at our summits. And not just, you know, by the way, when I say host it, they can't just put their name on it. They actually have to show up. They have to speak. They have to say something that's not an HR policy. <laughs> and all of those things create culture change because when they're on record and all of our summits are on the record, they're on record saying these things. Then number one, their employees know it. Their shareholders hold them accountable to it. And it sends a huge message. So as we've continued to build those in the talent sphere, we've built three initiatives. I mentioned Out Next, which is the first global next generation talent program. We have about 1,100 young leaders who have gone through that in the last five years. We'll continue to expand that. We have a program called Out Women. And as you may imagine, that focuses on both junior and senior LGBT women in business. Uh, and the concept there is really simple, which was most LGBT initiatives at multinational firms and companies tend to be very male-dominated. Uh, and so gay women in organizations don't often feel like the employee resource group is sort of their spot. But conversely, the women's initiatives at these organizations also don't have an LGBT component, right. right? So they're really only focused on the gender piece. So if you're a gay woman in this organization, you really can't go to the ERG that's LGBT-focused, and you really can't go to the women's thing if you wanted to, to discuss LGBT opportunities. So we really want to create out women to kind of create that space for both senior women. Uh, so we have small group dinners of 15 to 18 LGBT women with a platform all around the world. And then we have out women breakfast at each of our summits in New York, London, Hong Kong, and Sydney. Uh, I think our last one we had at Bloomberg actually here in New York two weeks ago, we had almost 190 LGBT women in business together talking about how they can support each other, do business together, et cetera. And then the final talent initiative we built is called Quorum. And the idea of Quorum is if you look at the board representation, and this kind of goes to your question about LGBT leaders at the C-suite, well, now that we're starting to at least see some progress there, I wanted to look at the next, the biggest level, which is the board leadership. And if you can believe it, only two companies in the entire Fortune 500 three years ago included LGBT in the definition of board diversity. Only two, which meant that 498 of the companies in the Fortune 500 did not include us, which then, of course, means that if you're not looking for LGBT folks, if you don't include them in your definition of diversity, then you're not going to have them. Right. right. And so by our very unscientific count, there were 16 out board members in the entire Fortune 500. Wow. So we launched Quorum with the idea of, one, getting companies to change their policies to actually add us to the definition of board diversity. And what I'm proud to say, we now have six companies, not two. So that's <laughs> a massive percentage increase, <laughs> right. but it's still a pretty small numeric increase. Um, but more importantly, or, or equally as important, we actually have, one, created a tool for companies. We literally we call it our board policy in a box. We literally wrote the policy for them so they can adopt the policy. But we're working with pension funds and trying to get them to amend what they consider diversity for when they make their investments. So New York City, New York State, CalPERS in California, and CalSERS 
have all added LGBT to the definition of their diversity mandate for how they invest their assets. So we're literally creating demand such that companies are now saying, wow, okay, LGBT matters. If we want our stocks to be in these pension fund portfolios, we better do something about this. Right. And so it's that sort of supply, demand, and leveraging the financial markets to actually create opportunity for LGBT leaders. So there seems to be somewhat of a bit of a disconnect, if I'm following correctly. You've shared some names of CEOs who are not only leaders of their industry, but they're leaders to leaders. Um, and you've shared that, um, much like Richard Florida's work and some other studies that show that diversity does lead to prosperity, it, it increases, it improves the bottom line. Why mm-hmm. is that message not being picked up more rapidly with other CEOs and other business leaders? Well, I think there are a couple things. If you take the board representation piece, I think the reason we weren't included was just benign neglect. I don't think people actually thought about it when they were writing these board policies 15 years ago. Right. Um, so I think it's more about raising the visibility. And I will say that you know, Bank of New York Mellon just changed their policy with our help about a month ago. Amalgamated Bank just changed their policy. I'm aware of at least six of our firms that are changing their policies this summer. So it's it's literally a matter of raising the issue to them and giving them the tools to do it. Um, you know, as it relates to the broader diversity piece, I think too often we expect that companies can change culture structurally. Um, and I think there are limits to what companies can actually change in our culture. And if you look at the racial inequities that we still face as a country, if you look at the challenges that we have under this new administration, um, you know, I think in the lack and what, what is positive to me is that in the lack of federal leadership that we're seeing on pretty much every metric you can come up with. The business community is actually continuing to stand up, whether that's around the Muslim ban or gun control. And you look what Delta did in Georgia, obviously LGBT issues. You know, there are 117 anti-LGBT bills in state legislatures right now. And in the last 12 months, only two have passed. And all the other ones that have gotten to the state legislatures have been blocked primarily by the business community. So I think... There's still a lot of work to be done from a societal perspective, and I think it's going to be a long road till we get to where we want to be on any level of these diversity metrics. But I do think the business community is doing a huge amount of progress or is creating a huge amount of progress. I love that. And I love hearing that. Uh, I love hearing it from you. I have a little bit of a question along that lines, though. John and I were recently at a, a conference for 3,500 credit unions. And one of the things that they talked about there is that these credit unions have a hard time telling their success stories so that it actually makes an impact on their members or, in their case, their shareholders. How do you think companies that are doing this kind of work can? Or as a community, we can do a better job at telling the story that that's what these companies are doing. And the reason I say that is that Mass Mutual did a study not too long ago that showed that 60% of LGBT individuals do not trust financial services companies. I think that there's a couple of things going on there. I think there's kind of the general idea that people don't trust. But I think also as a community, we've kind of felt left out of financial services. So how do companies, not just financial services, but companies in general, tell the story to our community and to the general population that they're doing this kind of work and that's important for them? And then in turn, how do we reward those companies? I I would say there are a few things. There's some pretty simple things. Um, You know, HRC has their buyer's guide for equality that they publish each year, which takes into account a company's HRC corporate equality index score and literally creates a step-by-step guide of, 
you know, if I have a headache, who's better for the LGBT community, Tylenol or Advil, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so that, you know, that very much exists. You know, on the mass mutual study, I've seen that and I've seen others that are not nearly as dire in terms of, you know, the financial services perception. Um, and I think it does fluctuate with the broader um, LGBT, not the, you know, the broader U.S. population perception of financial services, um, right? When the financial crisis right. versus now versus, you know, you see, we still see some some bad actors. Um, so I think that that probably fits in. I do think that the challenge that a lot of companies have and our community has right now is there is a perception that because marriage equality has become a reality that we're kind of done. We're good. <laughs> and nothing pisses me off more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, because we're not. And so a lot of people, I think, have thought, all right, you know, the, the marriage equality fight is over. I've, you know, I've gotten married. I work for a company that won't fire me because I'm gay. We're good. And yet 40% of Homeless youth in the United States identify as LGBT. Correct. Transgender folks can still be fired in 36 states. LGBT people or gay and lesbian people in 28. And companies are doing a lot around that and are continuing to try to. But I think it's a it's a double edged sword because if our community kind of feels like we're done and we're good, then there's not nearly the pressure that we can create on companies to continue to do more, right? And so that sort of pressure as a consumer to make the expectation of the companies with whom we do business has to remain there. I don't see companies backing off per se, but I will say in this new administration and the new world we live in, companies are fighting on so many fronts, right? right? It's not just about gay people being fired anymore. It's about Muslim people being deported and it's about, you know, Charlottesville and you, you name it. I mean, the last 18 months, something new happens every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and companies are really, really challenged with where they weigh in and how they weigh in and how they get the message out. I will say there's another tool that we've built from Out Leadership that we just launched two weeks ago. And all of this is available on our website, outleadership.com. But we have a, a tool that we launched called our Corporate Principles for LGBT Engagement. And the idea is pretty simple. Over the last eight years, we've helped companies convene around amicus briefs for marriage equality for the U.S., for Australia, for Hong Kong, non-discrimination bills at all kinds of state levels. And we've really kind of been the voice of senior business in a lot of these fights globally. And I realized that there wasn't really a guidebook for companies. And so we actually distilled down the best practices for how and when companies engage in our issues into this white paper that's about 15 pages. We had about 25 companies that participated from Nike to Salesforce to Morgan Stanley, basically sharing with us the decision trees of when they engage in LGBT issues, how they engage, what's the decision tree internally that they use, ideally so that companies at all levels can actually understand how the big companies are doing it. And I'm hopeful that by doing that, more companies will engage. Um, Because to your point, getting the story out there that companies are engaging and that they are doing this uh, is really, really important uh, because they are. Um, But I also think as a community, we have to be willing to embrace that. You know, there's a a whole sort of uh, push uh, on pride marches that I've been seeing about trying to exclude companies from pride marches. Uh, and I think that could not be more wrongheaded, my personal opinion. If you, you know, look at the progress we've made, I would argue a significant amount of it has been because of corporate support, because of CEOs leveraging their economic power, and to literally try to, you know, disinclude them, disinvite them, uh, I think is short-sighted. Um, so I think getting the message out couldn't be more important that companies in the business community are really with us in this fight and driving it, not just in the U.S., but globally. The voice of business, the single global consistent power that we have in our fight in the 78 countries where it's still illegal to be gay. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think 
to your point, David, though, I think, you know, companies have a lot to deal with and LGBT issues can't always be their number one issue. And that's why I think it's important for people like us, um, people like Todd and his organization um, to continue to keep this conversation going um, so that maybe when things aren't so volatile, <laughs> things quiet down, that business leaders can remember that, hey, these issues are still something we need to address. Right. I'm going to take a, a, a slightly different turn here, Todd, um, because you're so familiar with so many of these companies. Um, I have a question on whether or not um, I see some companies receiving, I'm going to just go ahead and lay it out there. They're receiving a 100 on the HRC index. And yet it seems like there are peers of theirs that are vastly outperforming them um, when it comes to what they are actually doing when it comes to engaging and supporting the, our community. So when, when one company who gets 100 is not doing so much, but with them we see one where they are signing on the amicus brief. They're out there pushing for the state laws to be changed or helping prevent state laws from being enacted that are discriminatory towards our community. Um, how do we... How do we decipher <laughs> the ones that are actually doing the good work? Um, the actual doing the good work, good work. They're not actually just receiving the the label. Well, I, I think it's a good question. I think one. I think the HRC Corporate Quality Index in its I think fourteen years has been probably the single biggest contrib contributor to companies shifting policies, especially for transgender and gender nonconforming people, mm -hmm. uh, because companies. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I think would not have been as likely or as quick to change their policies to expand to include transgender medical benefits, et cetera, were it not for their fear of losing their 100%. Um, so I think, you know, there's been a lot of positive stuff that has come out of the corporate quality index. Um, I think it is only one metric. And I think to, you know, assume that any one metric can fully capture a company's inclusion and what a company's corporate citizenship in our community is, I think, is probably misguided from the start. I don't think you can just use one metric for that. Um, I do think, you know, secondarily, I think there were 579 companies that got 100 this past year, which is huge. And yet 46% of employees are still in the closet in the United States. Right. And so one of the things and one of the challenges that, that I have with just looking at the Corporate Equality Index is that it really primarily measures policy. Um, and at a corporate level, we know that policy does not equal culture. Mm -hmm. And the cultural piece is the harder piece to measure. Um, and that goes to everything from will a company sign an amicus brief to how do they support their LGBT employees internally? Do they have development programs, et cetera? You know, those are all things that the CEI, you know, by definition, really can't necessarily measure. I will say we've actually built a, a tool that we're called, we call OLIQ, uh, which is a private diagnostic tool for companies. because challenging for companies is if they want to take the CEI, their results are public, mm -hmm. right? Um, right? And if they're on the journey somewhere, they're very unlikely to want to take it because the brand risk of getting a bad score is too high. Right. And so we built a tool that's one, uh, it's private, two, it's global, right? HRC really only looks at the US, Stonewall really only looks at the UK, et cetera. Three, it's business focused. So we actually have the dimensions around your corporate engagement, your leadership, your client connectivity, your board leadership. We try to look at all of those different dimensions that HRC does not. Um, and then it's benchmarkable so that when a company takes it, they can take it year over year and actually see progress and actually get some very diagnostic and specific tactical things that they can do as a company. 
um, because I thought that that really would be something that companies could leverage and use. And, and they actually are, which is kind of cool. Um, so, we're, you know, I think from a being a supplemental tool to the corporate quality index, um, OutLeadership IQ, OLIQ, I think is a, a helpful tool for companies. And then, you know, finally to the final point of your question, you know, how is a community? I think it just really, it's, it's incumbent on us to pay attention. Um, I'm amazed at how few in our community still know uh, how many states we can be fired in. Right. Or even from a philanthropic perspective, do you know that only 4% of our community gives to our community? Yes. <laughs> I find that shocking and appalling. It, right, I think it is. That's just, um, and, you know, the Movement Advancement Project and Enica have done a brilliant job of capturing that. Um, I'm on the board of Lambda Legal and the Williams Institute, both of whom do amazing work in the community. And I spend a huge amount of my time fundraising because I do think that, you know, if you look at the annual budget of Lambda being around $20 million and the impact that Lambda has in our community versus focus on the family, you know what their annual budget is? No. It's over $500 million. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's just one organization that tries to undermine our community. So when you look at, you know, all of the budgets of every single LGBT organization would still not even equal half of focus on the family's budget. And yet, if you look at the efficiency with which they, they accomplish the role, it's, it's actually kind of amazing to me. But imagine if, let's call it 6% of our community gave. Imagine what we could do then. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the recent numbers have shown that uh, in the United States, we have roughly a trillion dollars in purchasing power. And so if, if we could just give 1% of our money, that's $10 billion. And many religious organizations ask their members to give 10%. <laughs> and so the amount of money that that our community really has as a means in which to affect change is very important. I, I want to take one step back. First of all, I want to applaud you and your organization for the uh, the work that you're doing to kind of give a better look at companies and what they are doing. John and I uh, recently learned of the Workplace Equality Index that Denver Investments created, and uh, we're actually going to be interviewing John Roberts uh, for our podcast. And, and the work that he's done, similar to you, in actually interviewing employees at company at these companies to see if the policies that they have in place are actually if these companies are really walking the walk, uh, and so that they, are they actually earning those scores to those accolades that they're getting? Are those employees actually feeling empowered? Especially, you know, if you're, let's say you're you're an out employee, or maybe not an out employee, but you're living in a state where you could be fired. Do you feel protected by your company? Then, of course, that's a that's a company that we want to. We want that to resonate with uh, with our community so that those are the kinds of companies we want to be more successful because we want more individuals to feel comfortable in being out at work or being out and living the lives that they they should be living. So I wanted to thank you for that. Sure. And I, you know, I, I, I know John well. I'm actually on the advisory board for Denver Investments. And, you know, I think the idea of having financial consequences and opportunities for what companies do for our community is really important. Yeah. Um, being able to say, because you're a good fit LGBT community, we are buying your stock is a very sort of simple transaction matters. Um, UBS actually just launched an iShare, P-R-I-D. Right. Uh, when I was at Credit Suisse, I was part of the team that uh, initially helped uh, build a separately managed account that did a very similar thing to, to Denver in terms of investing in LGBT friendly companies. Nicole Dulé was amazing in building that, that matrix. And, you know, it, it's, I, I, I often say there are economic consequences to discrimination, 
i.e. companies that lose money because of discrimination, but there are economic opportunities to inclusion. And when a company can say, because of our policies, because of what we do in the community, we are attracting consumers, it's huge. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the L3T marketplace. We estimate globally it's $5.2 trillion. Right. Mm-hmm. But what I think is even bigger and more important from a marketing perspective is the ally marketplace. Right. Because I estimate the ally marketplace to be eight to 10 times the size of the LGBT market. And allies, we've, there's a ton of research that we've done and others have done that shows that allies are absolutely making and changing their buying behaviors based on LGBT inclusion. The parents of gay people, the sisters and brothers of gay people, the colleagues of gay people right. uh, are now making buying decisions based on companies' LGBT stances. So it's not just focusing on our market, it's focusing on the broader market um, that, that companies really have the opportunity which I think is something that isn't getting enough awareness and I think is something that we should be talking about. Right. John and I were at a, a conference recently that is is designed to encourage diversity in the uh, financial advisor space and financial services space and uh, we were one of the, that was one of the statistics that we were sharing is that that 70% of millennials expect you to have a workplace diversity policy that is inclusive of the LGBT community. And if you don't, they don't want to work for you. So if you're not inclusive, uh, and I think I saw a statistic recently that said that 17% of companies in the Fortune 500 still do not have those policies. So if those companies are trying to hire in the millennial space, which we know that they're all trying to do that right now, they're potentially cutting themselves off to a huge number of very productive, very effective employees that, and they're doing that because of whatever the reason is they don't want to enact those policies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's only going to increase. Um, so I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, and that, by the way, is the broad millennial population. That's not just LGBT folks. That's right. just mm-hmm. a, an expectation. Exactly. exactly. So if I'm a, a recent graduate or I'm starting my career out as an LGBT person, um, I've heard a lot of information on the show today. What would your advice be, Todd, um, to to get the information or the inspiration that I need to sort of advance my career? Where would I go on outleadership.com or what tools or resources do you offer um, that population? Well, I, I would say from an outleadership.com piece, if you want inspiration, we have recaps of every one of our summits. We've had 34 summits around the world in the last eight years. There's a recap available from every single one of them. The learnings are available. We do small recap, three to five minute videos that you can watch and seeing senior leaders discussing these issues, discussing their personal positions on them. Um, So I think from an inspiration perspective, I would say hopefully that's a useful tool. All of our research is available there as well. Um, If your company is not a member of Outleadership and you're joining it, I'd love it if you'd ask them (laughs) why they're not and or if they wanted to join. Um, but, you know, regardless of that leadership, you know, I often get asked and I speak at conferences for young leaders and I, I really encourage people to be out um, because there's research that shows that if you're out in your career, you're infinitely more successful, you're happier, you get promoted more quickly, you, you develop a level of trust with your colleagues, they trust you because you're not hiding something. Um, and it's, it takes a bit of bravery. And it takes a constant amount of coming out. It's not a one-time thing, right? You have to come out pretty much on a constant basis. You know, I have to come out a couple times a week, depending on where I am in the world and who asks questions about me. So you have to understand that that's, you know, coming out is a constant process. But, you know, the the number of people who will support you and who really want you to be your whole self in their environment is vastly, vastly larger than the small, minute number of people who don't. 
I think that's probably one of the quotes of the show, because <laughs> I, I do think that there are still a lot of individuals. I, we watch a lot of social media, a lot of the LGBT groups that are online, and there's still a lot of individuals who are very fearful state on, in these groups that they, they're not making decisions in their life because, because of who they think they are and the progress that they think that they would, would not be able to make. And so I want to share that quote with them, especially because you know, you're an individual who has obviously established yourself as a leader in not only in business, but in our space, uh, the LGBT community. And we need our young people, especially to hear that kind of message again, that there are more people out there who want to support you than there are who don't want to support you. And those people will be your allies and they will be, they will have your back. They absolutely will. The key is you have to let them know. They can't read your mind. Right. So if you're, if you're not out, you'll never know. Right. Exactly. And you touched on this a little bit. If my company is not a member of Out Leadership or, or we have a BRG or an ERG that's not as effective as it could be, what suggestions do you have for that individual to get their company on board with Out Leadership and or to make their um, ERG, BRG more effective? Well, from an Out Leadership perspective, it's pretty easy. They can just email info at outleadership.com. Um, and uh, we can send them membership information. Uh, we do have 70 companies that are members. We do primarily focus on larger companies. We're working through a smaller company membership opportunity that we're sort of piloting because um, I'd love us to get into the middle markets. We really have only been in the Fortune 500 thus far. Um, and I do think the middle markets, you know, since the middle market actually employs more employees than any other group in the U.S., I think that's a great opportunity to make more progress. Uh, in terms of the BRGs and ERGs, my biggest advice to people in the BRG space is make yourself business relevant. You don't want to be what I call the wine and wine group. Get yes. together and have a glass of wine and complain. Yes. Um, <laughs> you, you, yeah, yeah, you've got to prove business relevance and value to your companies. And I would recommend thinking through a business plan that lets you do that. How can you as a BRG help a company with recruiting? How can you help with their company's brand? with volunteer opportunities, with educating the culture? Could you be the driver behind an ally network for your company? How could you help the company bring in new clients? How could you help your company engage current clients? That really is where BRG becomes successful. Um, when it's driven by folks who are really only focused on a couple things that aren't business relevant, it just really doesn't succeed. And I think you know there are a lot of BRGs that are struggling because they were originally formed to get domestic partner benefits or non-discrimination clauses, and they've gotten that, which is great. Uh, but they haven't been able to reform to something that's business relevant uh, for now. Uh, so I think that's to the extent you can do that and engage allies and bring people along. I, I think that's that's how you can be successful. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And then lastly, where can our listeners uh, keep in touch with uh, what you're doing and uh, out leadership? Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter um, at Todd Sears. Um, although I think <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm getting better at the Twitter. I'm not fantastic. Um, our uh, but we have a social media team at Out Leadership uh, that I think is probably a, a great way to follow. Uh, we also have a newsletter that goes out every two weeks called Out News, uh, and you can subscribe to it at OutLeadership.com. That goes globally and it digests the most important things that happen in the LGBT community and the business community uh, globally each every two weeks. Um, that's a great opportunity. And then we're going to be launching a new hashtag out leader campaign in a few weeks, which you'll hear more about if you're tuned in. I'm really excited about it uh, with the idea of raising even more visibility around LGBT role models. Uh, so stay tuned for that. That's going to be launching in Pride Month. Um, but the social media, we actually are on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, again, at out leadership on all, all of the platforms. 
Awesome. Well, I know that you'll get at least two new subscribers to your email list today. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I would welcome that. So, Well, thank you very much. We appreciate you taking the time today and coming on our show. This has been um, a wealth of information that I think our audience will resonate with. And uh, we thank you for your time. Well, great. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate the visibility that you guys are creating because we need all the help we can get. Thank you. Thank you again, Todd, for joining us and sharing with us your work and your insight on what is happening in corporations around the world with regards to our LGBT family. Although I am no longer in the corporate space, I sure wish I had known about OutLeadership. If you have the desire to be an outstanding leader, check out OutLeadership.com and become a member. Thank you for listening. This episode has been brought to you by the Debt Free Guys 7-Day Debt Freedom Challenge. Hop over to debtfreeguys.com forward slash challenge and join hundreds of others who are freeing themselves of the headache of debt. Thanks again and have a great week. Okay, we just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. <laughs> <laughs> would help me if I had a personal chef made all me all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. <laughs> the other end I like the butts, so <laughs> yeah. uh. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.